I'm Susanna Walters, and welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is often missing in mainstream coverage. On this episode, three feminist science studies scholars discuss reproduction in the age of epigenetics. They offer a critical appraisal of recent developments in the much-hyped field of epigenetics, particularly as those developments have focused on reproduction. Their discussion provides a crucial corrective as the biological sciences push for more epigenetically informed and high-tech approaches to reproductive health. Their feminist lens allows them to ask new questions and push back against a scientific frame that continues to place responsibility for managing reproductive risk onto individual women. They ask why these new and very trendy epigenetic approaches, which even feminists had hoped might lead to more capacious or holistic understandings of reproduction, ultimately fail to live up to their own hype. Renee Almelin is Associate Professor of Sociology at Yale, Sarah Richardson is professor of the history of science and of studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard, and also a member of the Science Editorial Board. And Natalie Valdez is assistant professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Welcome to Ask a Feminist. I'm Sarah Richardson, and today we're talking about reproduction in the age of epigenetics with Renee Almelling and Natalie Valdez. Renee and Natalie, could I ask you to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, I am Renee Almelling, and I'm a professor at Yale University in the Department of Sociology uh, with courtesy appointments in American Studies and the School of Public Health and the School of Medicine's History of Medicine section. It's really great to be here with you both. Hi, I am Natalie Valdez, or Natalie Valdez, as my family calls me, and I'm an assistant professor in women's and gender studies at Wellesley College, and my training is in anthropology, specifically medical anthropology and science and technology studies. And I'm Sarah Richardson. I'm a historian and philosopher of science and gender studies scholar at Harvard. And my research is broadly on the history of the sciences of sex, gender, sexuality, and reproduction. Renee, perhaps you could start us off by talking about some of the connections between our work and what led to this conversation. Yeah, so I think it's really um, a delightful opportunity to be here. You know, we are we are here virtually and on a screen together, but we have been in conversation over the years, um, often in person, sometimes on the phone, sometimes on the page with one another, talking about these emergent issues in the science of reproductive health and reproductive risk, and more specifically, um, biomedical uh, sort of approaches to epigenetics. And so from our various vantage points, I would say, you know, I'm sitting in sociology. Uh, Natalie, you're sitting primarily in anthropology. And Sarah, you're history of science. We're all, we all have toes in gender studies or sometimes entire feet. Um, that we sit in these multiple communities and have been trained in and are in conversation with scholars in these multiple communities. And so I think the, the questions that we have asked in our own research and that we have been in conversation with, um, with one another 
are really about kind of these feminist approaches to science and technology and medicine and knowledge and risk. Um, and they just feel as urgent as ever in the face of continuing efforts to define reproductive health, you know, solely in terms of biological processes, um, especially with all of the sort of focus on individual bodies and women's bodies or bodies that have historically been defined as female. So I think that's what brings us here today. Um, and we sort of thought it was a good moment to really kind of pause and reflect on some of the emerging issues for feminist scholars and activists interested in the science and medicine of reproduction. Um, so of course, we're at this moment when basic rights to health during the pandemic, basic rights to abortion are under threat in the US in a way not seen in decades. Um, and at the same time, you know, we all are watching the biological sciences push for more and more high tech approaches to some of the most complicated questions about cause and effect um, in reproductive health. So here's where I'm going to, I'll toss it back to you, Sarah, first, and, and then we'll, uh, you know, bring uh, Natalie into the conversation. But um, I think, Sarah, you know, if you want to sort of start us off with a little bit of history, right? So your books on the science of sex and maternal effects and epigenetics, um, you've published commentaries in science journals about the regularity with which we sort of blame mothers for reproductive outcomes. You direct the Gender Sci Lab at Harvard, where you have this amazing interdisciplinary team of researchers doing really innovative work. Um, and so if you had to sort of step back and, and do the sort of introductory primer for somebody new to this scene, how do we get here, right? How would you sort of place some of the current feminist discussions and debates about epigenetics within this longer history of scholarship on reproductive health and reproductive risk? Thanks, Renee. Yeah, I think feminist STS scholarship um, developed along several lines. Um, of course, there was the interest in women in science. And of course, there was the interest in the sciences themselves of sex, gender, and sexuality. Um, and I think that really reproduction, and we might call it reproductive essentialism, right, is at the core of the link between biomedical discourse and gender and sex and sexuality, and really at the core of many systems of gendered oppression. And so this is how work like Emily Martin's became so formative to our field and all of these different strands of research because Emily Martin was mapping how gendered symbolics and ideologies enter into scientific knowledge about reproduction. And from that place forward, I think we've been grappling with the space of tension between a critique of the reproductive sciences, especially around risk and especially around reproductive essentialism, and also envisioning other forms of um, conceptualizing the reproductive body. And one thing that's drawn me to this field of epigenetics is exactly this tension, right? Our interest in what we might call the biosocial body, the plastic body, the environmentally embedded body, which is so rooted in these feminist science studies um, traditions. And at the same time, 
our keen attention to how these sciences can reproduce relations of oppression um, and embed ideologies of worthy and unworthy bodies that are familiar to us from the history of eugenic discourse, for example. And you know, really on that note, I'm interested in hearing from Natalie um, as an anthropologist about you know, the on the ground experiences, the empirical observations of epigenetics within the context of the clinic and pregnancy cohort research. Thank you so much, um, Sarah, for that. How did we get here? Um, context and background. And thank you, Renee, for spearheading this conversation and getting us all together. I feel so honored to be part of the conversation. And um, I think that it's fascinating to be able to describe this elephant, uh, as it were, um, epigenetics from multiple angles and um, have a generative kind of bring our, um, you know, the fruits of all of our labors from different spaces together um, to project this very complex image of what epigenetics might mean in different areas of reproductive science. Um, so for from my angle as an anthropologist um, who did ethnographic um, work on clinical trials, ongoing clinical trials in the US and UK that target overweight, ethnically diverse pregnant populations in an effort to reduce the risk of obesity and diabetes in their children and their children's children potentially because the figure of the pregnant body is assumed to hold um, or is imagined to hold multiple generations in one. So drawing on logics of epigenetics and DOHAD or the developmental origins of health and disease, we have interventions that claim um, a potential impact if you change what pregnant people eat and how much they, and you control their weight, um, that potentially you could have some long-term impact into the future health outcomes of um, the next generations. So in practice, uh, a lot of what this looked like on the ground was very similar to older sciences of interventions and evidence-based medicine, because even though we have um, an idea that epigenetics is um, new to some people, old to other people who have been working in evolutionary biology for a long time, this isn't uh, a new um, mechanism of evolution. It is particularly uh, attractive to uh, an interdisciplinary group of people who are interested in how environments can um, get under our skin. Um, but the methods and the interventions I found are actually very old and familiar. So here we have this um, phenomenon in, in pregnancy trials, contemporary pregnancy trials that are drawing from new science and translating it through older methods and older frameworks of interventions. And so part of my book, Weighing the Future, is basically making uh, or, or illustrating the ways in which new science is foreclosed in particular sociopolitical environments, um, particularly as a result of the older framings of, of interventions, individualized interventions to be um, specific, and methods like RCTs or the randomized control trial which is considered the gold standard of evidence-based medicine. 
So within these notions of interventions and these methods, we see that um, new science is not actually having the impact that it had been hoped to have or um, the kind of the dynamic uh, that um, I think Sarah and, and Renee were, were using in the languages, the hope and the hype of, of epigenetics has not been realized. And, and, I, and I make the case that part of that is because we're using methods and framings of interventions that come from a much older period of time. And, and in one of my chapters, I kind of show that pregnancy studies have a very long history um, and only recently are they being kind of umbrellaed into this science of reproductive risk and um, epigenetics, postgenomics. And so when we have that kind of dynamic of like something old, like older methods being enveloped into new science or new science being enveloped into older methods, um, we get a, a good um, kind of case study for thinking about what kind of innovations are limited. Um, so unfortunately, uh, the the modifications that were imagined to um, occur in human populations are really hard to capture. So that's to say that most of the clinical trials or um, clinical pregnancy trials that test lifestyle interventions on overweight, ethnically diverse pregnant populations are inconclusive. And um, they're not finding clinically significant results between control and experimental groups. And that means that um, we're not quite sure if um, these interventions could have uh, an impact on health across the life course. We don't know this. Um, the, the evidence is not um, conclusive. And so I think that it's providing us a good opportunity to reevaluate the kinds of methods that we use, the kinds of data that we value in collecting um, and pouring our resources into collecting particular kinds of data, biobehavioral data at massive scales. Um, and then what do we want to do with that data and to what end? And so those are the kinds of questions that I um, can illustrate in the book through ethnographic participant observation uh, um, data collection of my own. And, and it was an interesting position that I was in to be an ethnographer and also be a staff member on these clinical trials to get a really intimate view into what it looks like to produce a trial and what it looks like to produce a trial in a very particular sociopolitical climate and what um, what that does to the ideas that we, the big, big, big theoretical ideas of epigenetics that kind of have to get grounded in a very particularly constrained um, context at times. Um, but I think that um, we all kind of have a, a common theme across our work, which is to, um, you know, sound the alarm that individualized interventions are not necessarily the most effective um, or valuable investment of our public funds. And we have different examples for why that is a philosophical moral um, challenge around blaming mothers. And we have a scientific evidence-based conundrum that these interventions aren't working. And then, you know, we have a, a much um, more interesting kind of scope that Renee's work brings in to say, well, we're actually not even including all the individual bodies, let alone um, the focus of individualism as, as, a, as a priority. So, um, Renee, would you like to, to share 
this um, the the expertise that you've shown us of the missing parts of the science of reproduction. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. I mean, I yeah, there's so many wonderful questions that have already emerged in our, you know, the beginning of our conversation that I can see this going on for um, for hours. So Natalie, thank you so much for the really generative questions that you um, just sort of pointed to that are emerging from your work. And yeah, I wanted to sort of pull out, I think, two different threads. Um, and one of them is sort of this, these, these original hopes um, that I think a lot of feminists felt for epigenetics and even more broadly, you know, sort of social scientists and humanists um, who have been interested in medical knowledge and uh, bodily risk of all sorts, that there was this sort of expectation or, or belief, <laughs> I mean, hope is really the best way to put it, that epigenetics was going to give us a way to think about not just individual bodies, right? This is sort of just a truism um, in medical sociology that one of the things that we know about biomedicine is that it really sort of concentrates our attention at the level of individual bodies. Um, what are they eating? What are they doing? What are they smoking? What are they drinking? How are they, you know, and we calculate all kinds of um, population level information, but it's at the basis of counting up individual bodies. And so with that sort of understanding of how medicine has individualized health and put it on sort of individual people's own choices and agency and, and all the limitations that come with that, um, I think that a lot of people, and I would, I would include myself in this, sort of had hopes that epigenetics was going to give us a way of thinking about the environment writ as large as you can write it, you know, the sort of social and political and cultural and historical uh, and the, you know, geographical and the, the environment that we all exist in and that we are not individuals in, that we are all subject to these broader structural forces. And so the things that we, uh, you know, have decades and decades of data on about sort of the investments that any society makes in health and medicine and clothing and food and um, environmental, you know, cleanliness, that all of these things affect all the bodies in that society. Um, and, you know, the, the idea that epigenetics might be allowed, allow us to change our focus and shift it from the level of individuals to these broader environmental and structural forces, I think was a really sort of exciting promise of um, an epigenetic approach that for all the reasons that both uh, Natalie, you and Sarah and your work have shown um, has not happened, right? We took this sort of potentially new framework for thinking about health and risk and have just really kind of reappropriated it to back to individual bodies, back to individual, um, you know, people who are pregnant and what are they eating and drinking and what choices are they making, right? We're right back to where we started. Um, and so I think that that's, um, that is, I guess it's a question, you know, like, is there still hope for this or do we really just need to acknowledge that, uh, you know, this is this is not going to be a way that we can sort of make different arguments. Um, and I think that's one of the questions that I'd put on the table for, you know, in addition to Natalie's wonderful question about like, what are, what are we collecting this data for and what would we want to do with it? I would put this this question on the table of, you know, why is it that we're still having to make arguments about how structural and environmental forces matter? 
after decades of making that argument, I mean, every time I talk to a journalist, every time I talk, you know, I'm just constantly having to say, it's not just about individual choices, right? I just feel like we shouldn't still be here, but we are. So that's sort of one thread. And then the other thread that I would I would sort of pull out is, is Natalie, your kind invitation to talk about some of the research that I had just recently been doing about um, what I called the missing science of men's reproductive health and really thinking about, you know, all of the, the biomedical research that is done on pregnancy and pregnancy health and pregnancy risk uh, historically um, and drawing on here both of your work um, has really been about sort of focusing on uh, women and bodies identified as women's bodies, um, their sort of health and behaviors and age, all the things that happen and uh, that women do and the, the effects that that might have on reproductive outcomes. And for all of that focus on women uh, to not even really ask the question about uh, men's bodies or bodies that produce sperm, um, that, you know, what would it mean to actually think about how men's health and men's age and men's um, behaviors, how those might affect sperm and potentially affect children's health. So here I come at it from a, a, a different perspective and sort of looking at you know, the, the idea of um, the gender binary and the relationality between these categories of male and female as underpinning the production of knowledge about reproductive health and risk in such a way that sort of women's bodies were coded as reproductive and men's bodies were coded as not reproductive. And so the bulk of the science and the medical uh, research and the clinical attention has really sort of landed on women's bodies. And what does that mean for what we know and what we don't know um, about bodies that produce sperm and, and how they matter for reproductive outcomes, which then has led me into a whole, you know, kind of new can of worms, uh, one of which is sort of these questions about epigenetics and what does it mean to say, okay, well, we shouldn't, you know, we don't want to just take all of the sort of stress and anxiety and individualization and moralization and stigmatization that we've done of women and like, let's just spread that around to everybody, right? That's not a good way forward, but it has raised a, a set of new questions for me about like what, you know, what's next? What would produce health for all bodies, you know, regardless of whether they're reprodu reproducing or not, um, regardless of how they identify in terms of their own gender, regardless of sort of the different components of an individual person's body or what an individual does, how do we create a society where we uh, sort of focus on and, and work to ensure that everybody has access to what we know would make them um, feel better and and be and be healthier without the sort of individualizing moralizing stigmatizing so i will i'll pause there those are those are two threads i would pull out and i'll see who wants to pick up any or all or others <laughs> for, for the next set this might be a good point to jump in and uh, and talk about what epigenetics is um you, you know so renee usefully referred to epigenetics as a framework Right, it, it's a set of concepts or a way of approaching the body, the genome, questions of heredity, questions of development, and uh, of the biology-society relation. Um, and at the same time, my work has really argued for the importance of looking very closely at what the science can show, 
the strength of causal relations, going back to what Natalie was saying about, well, what has this science actually shown? And um, really digging in to look field by field, how epigenetics is being incorporated into claims making. Um, it's really hard to say uh, with a broad stroke, what epigenetics is and the strength of its claims because these vary so considerably across areas of, of research. Epigenetics refers to the study of molecular mechanisms in and around the DNA molecule that are responsive to environmental cues and changes in those mechanisms can change the way our genes behave. Epigenetics in the sense often understood by biomedical researchers is simply the measurement of certain accessible biomarkers at the level of gene regulation. So most often it's measuring um, levels of methylation using a popular platform, the Illumina gene chip, um, that allows crude measurements of variation in methylation, which is a factor that can assist in suppressing or activating genes. Um, and this mode of measurement, this metric, this collapsing really of um, extreme inequality, deprivation, exposures into a set of biological markers at the level of the genome, um, and into health outcomes produced at the maternal fetal interface is a massive collapsing of scales, right? Um, and involves a number of assumptions about what that can measure, how stable it is, what a very small difference in that metric means, how to measure it against the backdrop of the specificity of a particular population or its social ecology. So to really put a point on um, both Natalie's point about the persistence of these studies despite their failure to provide strong evidence that such interventions are efficacious in improving health outcomes either for the mother or for offspring and descendants, and Renee's point about the way these sciences exclude whole realms of potential early life influences, influences including the partner or um, the male sperm contributor. Um, it tells us that there is um, a, a sort of empirical gap in the scholarship. If you're studying correlations between early maternal effects, uh, or early maternal outcomes, and excluding fathers, you essentially don't have a null or a control in your study. Um, so this is to bring us to this concept of cryptic causality and the crypticity of claims making in this field more broadly, meaning that the effect sizes are small, um, they vary considerably across populations. There's a very long causal chain between the proposed exposure and the outcome. Um, and many of the factors that may contribute to those outcomes are either hard to measure or are simply excluded and unmeasured. Um, and that is that to engage with this science, we need to dig in to the empirics of it. And this is the feminist empiricist in me, right? Deeply valuing the importance of 
feminist critiques of science that take seriously the methods internal to the science and then um, bring all of our tools of social analysis to picking up the corners around common sense assumptions and in fact inferential um, reasoning within the sciences. So um, what I would say about epigenetics, I think is important to appreciate is that it is a contested area of science that varies considerably in its claims across different fields. It's subject to tremendous hype um, across many different stakeholders with totally different values and ideologies. Um, and as Natalie said, there's this sort of phenomenon where the work persists and continues despite the failures of its findings. So there's sort of more to it than the empirical claims, right? There's this set of narratives. There's this set of hopes. Um, there is hype. There is a promissory. There's a future vision. Um, I've called it the epigenetic imaginary um, that profoundly shapes how we think about this new research in, in epigenetics. And that imaginary has a set of assumptions about re reproductive risk that is um, gendered and socially situated in all sorts of ways. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the kind of what is epigenetics um, in, um, you know, what is the mobilizing definition, but then what does it look like? Um, in practice, because this notion from my um, ethnographic work is that not everybody, and like you said, it's a contested space. And one of the forms that I've understood this to be contested is that not everybody understands it to be mean the same thing. So depending on what scale um, you're looking at, um, nutritional uh, epigeneticists and molecular epigeneticists or neuroscientists who use epigenetics, they're all going to look at very different scales of the environment, um, ranging from the junk stuff around um, the DNA to organ systems to toxic chemical um, exposure. And so one of the examples that I can provide for how um, this collapsing works in practice is that um, you know, the, the, the concept of the maternal environment um, becomes uh, narrowed down, as we've all said, into individual bodies and behaviors. But particularly, you can have the um, intrauterine environment or the fetal environment that gives possession to the fetus as its own environment, which then completely ignores and invisibilizes um, of the pregnant person who is part of this environment. And then, of course, you have maternal metabolic environments. So that was a, a, a notion that part of the science, some of the scientists that I worked with were using. Um, and that was a closed system. So discrete, closed um, and, and really had to do with the internal mechanisms of metabolism in, in pregnancy. And then you have um, maternal environments envisioned through health psychology that consider the home environment and food as environment. And so you, you start to see that the different scientific agendas start to play a very particular role in assessing the environmental variables that come to matter in testing out interventions in clinical trials. And so 
it's a kind of a moving target. And I remember people were like, well, so then what does, what's the environment? Because of course we have, we can have a solid definition of epigenetics, but we don't have a solid definition of the environment. So when we're talking about a science that is explicitly engaged with a gene environment interaction, but um, the environment isn't stable, stably defined at various scales, then we start to see the, the, the unstable ground on which many of these definitions are built upon. And, um, and the consequences of this are that, uh, we don't really get the most out of our science. So one of the, one of the key arguments is that feminist and critical race perspectives are fundamental for being able to get more out of these innovative ideas. So I'm not totally convinced that this, like, although it's discouraging and disappointing that we see the same kinds of interventions, the same kinds of individual priorities valued um, in new, exciting contexts of post-genomics, I'm, I came away with the, a, a little bit of an ambivalent, ambiguous sense that like, okay, so where are we now? with um, our approaches to epigenetics and its value. And, and again, one of the main things I have to say is that epigenetics in pregnancy trials cannot be disentangled from DOEhead. So we can't think about these mechanisms of evolution without thinking about the impacts across the life course, which is why um, DOEhead and epigenetics are kind of married together in um, pregnancy studies and interventions. So so thinking about the inter um, interaction between fields now is is an is an interesting unfolding um but i you know i get the question oh so so is there no more hope like is are you just giving us a kind of doom and gloom um conclusion around you know this exciting idea and then it's foreclosure and i and i try to maintain some space for ambiguity around its unfolding that it can be otherwise potentially there's still the potential of it being under otherwise and this is um you know inspired by my grounding of my theoretical framework in black feminism and um particularly the work of um Catherine McKittrick and Sadia Hartman and thinking about like how does failure generate um a possibility at the margins how um how can science and our understandings of science and knowledge be otherwise and um and I was inspired by McKittrick's new book on um, dear science to think about like Okay, so what, where and what are the spaces that we could get the most out of this science? And I, and I've been thinking that actually it might be in the arts and music and art and in poetry and thinking about how epigenetics is being taken up in these totally different spaces. So here I'm thinking with, um, and these are just very mainstream common examples, but in, um, in the show, Dear White People, there was this invocation of epigenetics as a way to explain intergenerational trauma. And um, in um, indigenous queer poet work of, of Tommy Pico, um, there was this invocation of, of, of trauma being um, being explained through experience in the present. So and, and this kind of brings up along um, uh, the the more recent examinations of what what it could look like to think about our bodies as holding beyond environments, but a more temporal scope. So the temporality of trauma being invoked in here. And, and again, the, the artists probably have the most um, uplifting and potential around their invocations of epigenetics, because 
um, the new NIH studies that are drawing on epigenetics, particularly in the realm of race and racism, are basically just saying um, race is an environmental factor that would um, influence your uh, outcomes differently. And instead, and this is again just a, um, as um, Nadia Boulahaj has has been saying, a reinscription of um, genetic racism in a postgenomic age. But but basically, we're still comparing outcomes across unstable categories of race, as opposed to envisioning racism as an environmental exposure, not race as a category to compare across. And so. Um, I'm definitely looking towards the the poets and the the performers and the artists that can bring new life to this science in a way that um, the enduring kind of um, constricting frameworks of data and methods might not be the space of exploration for drawing out what we could get out of epigenetics moving forward. Yeah, I think that is um, so sort of so important and really fascinating to sort of think about kind of what would be the next steps or what are the potential directions? Like, where do we go from here? Um, but I, I was reflecting that our, our attention has been on sort of the scientific realm and the medical realm. And one of the things that I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping there might be some graduate student out there listening who's thinking about, you know, dissertation projects. One of the, the sort of um, areas I think that we need to know more about is uh, the way that all of this is being commodified and turned into products and um, used as the basis for new companies. And so the sort of the injunction to follow the money. So we, we have each of us in our different ways followed the scientific knowledge making and the consequences of that. Um, but there are all kinds of for-profit ventures out there and even non-for-profit ventures that take up uh, epigenetic claims and epigenetic ideas in the service of um, creating new products. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, kind of uh, sperm banks that exist out there to say, bank your sperm while you're young before you get any more epigenetic modifications uh, or diet shakes or, you know, like name all the things. I'm sure there's pills and all the uh, there's apps and, um, you know, to sort of think about the way that um, that there's a market that has emerged around some of these claims and the effects of that market on consumers, people, you know, taking uh, hard earned money and spending it on these things with the hope that they are making some difference in their lives or the lives of their children. Um, but I would sort of point to that as a potential area that needs um, a whole lot more sort of empirical engagement so that we know what's going on and what the effects of that sort of outgrowth of this science are. I really want to thank Natalie for that um, question, you know, how can we move beyond critique? Uh, what do we have to offer, for example, scientists or others, whether they're in the arts, whether they are pregnant people, um, to, to think about um, the science of epigenetics? Some of the, um, I think, I think the value that feminist approaches might be able to offer um, might come, and I've seen some initiatives in this direction, um, developing study designs that are driven and built from the needs and interests of pregnant people and their communities um, in which there's significant governance and oversight by participants. Um, and 
I think certainly there is the possibility of doing this work just for the joy of the basic science of understanding the maternal fetal relation if we can surround it with the ethical and critical discourse that doesn't lead to the science becoming uh, contributing to that is a sort of zero risk to the fetus frame right where everything is conceived of as either harming or helping right so some interventions around how risk discourse immediately emerges from these sciences um, and this is where the alternative forms of narration that perhaps artists um, might be able to bring us could be helpful. But I also want to push back against the idea that it's in a way incumbent upon us as critics to also offer a solution. What would be better um, right, than doing work this way? It is um, an important uh, call. And at the same time, it is a very unsophisticated sometimes way of quashing critique, right? Well, do you have a solution? Is there a better way to do <laughs> to do the work? Well, maybe it's um, deeply problematic all the way down and rooted in eugenic assumptions and impoverished science, right? And perhaps our role as critics, we can preserve a space, right? Um, just for healthy, deep, analysis of the science and the work that it is doing um, in the world. Um, that is, I just want to open a conversation about the, the, the sort of asymmetrical pressure on the feminist critic to not only perform the analysis, but then provide another research platform or a better way of, of doing the work. Um, that is, uh, the demand for providing recommendations, for being practical, for going beyond critique, um, is can quickly elide the um, depth of engagement and theoretical mastery and sort of transformative um, perspectives on science that is required even to get into the science and to process this work that is emerging at the rate of tens of thousands of papers per year, right? Um, so I'm just opening up the question um, of you know the, your experiences um, with putting your work into the world, and you know audiences often want to know what are the implications for me and what can I do? What are the what's practical about this uh, feminist scholarship, right? And how do we as scholars navigate um, those, those demands within this incredibly complex discourse uh, where there's a clear hierarchy of knowledge um, with those who are in the sciences with the highest epistemic authority? So th thank you, Sarah, for, those, for the provocation around um, what's demanded of us as, as feminist scholars in science and technology studies and I think that on a somewhat related note that we all talked about was the the pressure to um, a cut, to make our recommendations and solutions useful and practical and and I had a reaction to that part being that it's so exhausting to constantly have to channel all of our intellectual labors 
towards making very similar claims that have been made over the course of, of generations of feminists who work within and around reproductive health and politics that, um, you know, access to healthcare, that um, moving beyond a, a binary framework of choice, embracing a kind of reproductive justice notion into our politics and our science from the ground up, not just at the end, but literally, like, how do we ask research questions that keep in mind um, BIPOC people who are in vulnerable populations who are most impacted by the science um, in their implementation at a public health scale? Uh, so I, and I think more recently, the, the constant like, well, what does this mean now? What does your work mean now in this potentially um, you know, post-apocalyptic age of abortion access if um, you know, uh, we, we might not have access to abortion in the coming uh, months and year? And so I think that while on the one hand, I believe fundamentally that we um, need to keep sounding the alarms over and over and over again, as all of us have, and, and, and in particular, um, Black feminists and, and women and scholars of color have also alarmed for a very long time. So I'm on board for, for creating the, the energy and refocusing the attention on, onto those same issues of rights and justice. And then on the other hand, um, I also feel, um, that my, creativity is 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 often foreclosed because of this because the socio-political climate is not changing even though our ideas are so generative and so fertile to be thinking well beyond the same questions around binary frameworks of reproduction and and access and justice so it's it's a it's a kind of like um a an internal tension that i have around like what if I lived in a world where I could think about anything and that my ideas could just be imaginative um, and and I wouldn't have to be worried about the very same issues that generations of, of feminists before me have had to worry about. So I'm hoping that we can hold both um, that, that tension um, in making the in, in interventions that are necessary to confront our social crises and also um, create space for art and imaginativity and, and creativity beyond it. So I'm hopeful that um, that we as as a collective group of thinkers can. Um, and I'm just very grateful for this conversation that we've had today. Wow, Natalie, those are powerful words to end on. Thank you so much to Natalie Valdez and Renee Almelling for this wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to the work we'll continue to do together. Thank you both so much. This was so fun. Thanks so much again to Renee, Sarah, and Natalie for this fascinating conversation. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Only good reviews, please. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger project we're doing at Science called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is all available for free on our website at sciencejournal.org. You can find tons of fabulous free feminist content there, including our short take series, where we offer commentaries on feminist books, most recently, Abolition Feminism Now, by Angela Davis, Erica Miners, Gina Dent, and Beth Ritchie. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which has essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening.